Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. It's the last Sunday of this year, of course, and we're on the precipice of a new year. I think it's pretty normal for us as human beings to kind of get reflective at the end of a year. And I was thinking about that and thinking, some of you, it's been a tough year. Some of you have lost a loved one and said goodbye. Uh, some of you, your marriages, perhaps, or a close friendship has fallen apart or is just strained. Uh, some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have gotten terrible news from the doctor and you're struggling with health issues that you never thought you would. And uh, as you reflect, you go, man, I hope this next year's better. But sitting in the same room, some of you, you go, like, this was the best year ever. It's the year I fell in love. It's the year I got married. It's the year a baby entered our family. It's the year I got a job or I got a promotion. Or uh, maybe it's for some of you, this is the year you met Jesus for the first time. And so whether you've had a really hard year or a really great year, this morning I want us to think about a man named Jesus. He's God, but he was a man. And how he wants to bring perspective to every situation, every circumstance that you walk through in life. And my prayer, my hope is that we will see Jesus just a little bit differently this morning. Maybe in a way we've never quite seen him before. And we will be drawn to him and drawn to the truth of who he is for us and in us. Uh, without apology, I just need to give credit. Frank Viola is one of my mentors from afar. He's an author and speaker. And a lot of the content, uh, kind of the thoughts were gleaned from him. And of course, I've reworked it and made it my own. But uh, it's just really important that I give that some of the, the credit to Mr. Viola this morning. Would you uh, just pray with me? And I want to commit this time. Jesus, we thank you for children. Thank you for this time of year. Thank you for your presence in our lives. And Lord, as we uh, listen to truths from your word, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you want us to hear. And God, I just uh, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to serve you in this way, in this hour. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 2, we read the story of uh, Jesus who gets lost in the temple. That's right. Mary and Joseph, every year, they were a good Jewish family. And so they would take Jesus and all of his brothers and sisters. And there was probably cousins and uncles and aunts. And they would take this family caravan, a three or four day journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And I expect that it was sort of this grand holiday every year. And uh, they would have done this every year. In Luke 2, when we read about this incident, Jesus is 12 years old. And Mary and Joseph, after the seven days of celebration, are heading home with their family. And there's, again, probably lots of little kids running back and forth around the, uh, amongst the caravan. And they lose track of Jesus. At the end of that day, when everyone's heading home, they realize he's not here. And so anxiety, I'm sure, creeps in. And uh, they head back to Jerusalem. And three days later, they finally find Jesus. And Mary says to Jesus in this text, in this text, and you can read the, the anxiety in her, in her words. We've been worried sick. Where have you been? And uh, basically, Jesus just says, you know, you really, it shouldn't be a surprise that I was about my father's business. 
they found him in the temple. He was listening to the scribes and Pharisees and asking questions and interacting. Now, our culture, it's no surprise, the world that we live in, is losing track of Jesus, aren't we? Uh, Jesus is getting pushed more and more to the fringes, and we notice it at Christmas, I think, perhaps in a special time, how Jesus is getting pushed off the stage. But my main concern this morning isn't that our culture is losing track of Jesus, but that the church and Christians, that we sometimes lose track of Jesus. Now, for some of you this morning, if you're honest, it's been a long, slow drift And if you're honest with yourself, you don't have the same passion for Jesus that you once did. Time and busyness and jobs and family and the rough stuff as life have sort of pushed Jesus to the back corners of your life. And you would say, yeah, I think I've kind of lost track of Jesus. Some of us, we can lose track of Jesus in the midst of doing a lot of spiritual activity and spiritual good things. After all, Joseph and Mary did. I mean, going to Jerusalem and celebrating the Passover was a good spiritual thing to do. And in the midst of this, they lost track of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said something like this. He said, there are some people that are so uh, concerned about uh, spreading Christianity that they have no time to think about Christ. And so there's all kinds of good things We can put on the altar, on the throne, and sort of push Jesus off. It can be good things like mission or discipleship or or, uh, the gifts of the Spirit or studying end times. There can be all kinds of really, really good things. But if that becomes our sole focus, we too can lose track of Jesus. And so my message this morning, I want to, kind of take a macro look and I want to talk about this man Jesus from creation right through to the book of Revelation and my my goal this morning is to give us a fresh perspective to kind of stir up the supremacy the, the importance the centrality of who this man Jesus Christ is for us who are followers of him because you see we don't ever graduate from Jesus It's not like we know we get saved by accepting Jesus into our heart, into our life, and then, okay, so now now what's next? You know, I want to learn about this, and I want to... No. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. We don't ever graduate or move on from Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter in the New Testament we call Colossians. He wrote it to the Christians in this town called Colossae. And the Christians of Colossians were sort of losing track of Jesus. Yeah, we've got Jesus figured out, but what's next? And Paul wrote this letter to combat that and to help them remember and come back to the centrality and supreme importance of who Jesus is for them and in their lives. And uh, in chapter 1, starting with verse 15, it's like Paul actually breaks out in this hymn or this poem, and it's an incredible piece of literature And I want to read this to you and then use this as a springboard for the rest of my message. And my message is going to be a little bit of a story. And I want to take you on a journey, an epic journey, where we look at who Jesus was. And then I want to bring you to a summit point in this story. And that's how the message will unfold. But first, let me read from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. And I've 
I've changed it just a little bit. I've changed it to the first person. So we get a bit of a different perspective. I've, I've changed it so that it's like Jesus talking to us. So this is what it sounds like. Starting with verse 15 of Colossians 1. I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by me all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by me and for me. I am before all things, and in me all things hold together. And I am the head of the body, the church. I am the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything I might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in me, and through me to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through my blood shed on the cross. And then I want to read verse 21 and 22 as it is in the text. Paul says, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, he, Jesus, has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And then I want to read verse 26. This message, what Paul was just, had just written, he says, This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. So let's unpack this and use this text that I wrote as a springboard. And I'm going to do it in the form of a story, in a sense, and the story begins before the beginning of time. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit conceived a plan in their hearts. Paul refers to this as God's eternal purpose. You could, you know, one could preach dozens of sermons on God's eternal purpose. God had this plan before time began. And we will see as we follow who Jesus is from the beginning of time through to eternity that he's working on this plan, this eternal plan that was in the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so God the Father began to create. And he created beauty itself. He created the invisible world, and there is an invisible world which we sometimes forget about. And he created all that we can see, and it's gorgeous. Even in its fallen state, this world is, is beautiful. I, I like gardening. And there's times when I just can wander in my backyard in summer and be in awe of the flowers and the colors and, and how the colors mix together and the textures. Sometimes I, uh, like a sunrise or a sunset, will just catch me by surprise. About eight years ago when I was working construction for just that little season in my life, we worked outside and uh, as it got into the fall and early winter of that year, it was dark when we got to work and we'd see the sunrise. And I remember one morning, one of the young guys was working like 10 feet away from me and uh, he did not know who Jesus was. And it was one of those gorgeous sunrises, the pinks and the oranges and the, the violets. And he sort of dropped his tool and he looked up and he said, that's a fantastically beautiful sunrise. Only he didn't use the word fantastic, he used another F word. And, and it was a curse word. But even though this young man didn't know God, there was something within him that was drawn to worship whoever it was that created this. 
That's because God's fingerprints are all over his creation. And it's amazing. And then God created the apex, of course, of his creation. Adam and Eve, a man and a woman who are created in his very image. Distinct and unique from all of the rest of his creation. And in the middle of the garden, God placed a tree, a special tree called the tree of life. And somehow the life of God was pulsating. I I don't think this was a normal tree. I'm not sure. We read about this tree in Revelation at the end of Scripture. There was something very special about that tree and its fruit. And I suspect the very life of God somehow was passed on to Adam and Eve as they ate that fruit because when tragedy struck, when when Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, God banished them from the garden. Do you know why? He said, the scripture tells us, so they wouldn't be able to eat the fruit from the tree of life. Because if they would have, I suspect they would have lived eternally separated from God because of their sins. And God had this plan, this eternal plan, and so he had to banish them from the garden. But God still had this eternal purpose, this plan, and he was going to enact it at any cost. And so he chose a man. man's name was Abraham. And God wanted to show his divine life through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. And they would be this incredible nation that would know God intimately and reflect him and and spread who God was and spread God's life to other nations. But we know that plan also failed. And so then God did the unthinkable. God This perfect, holy, majestic God who created this world, which was now at enmity with him, really was now an enemy of God. God penetrated this creation by placing baby Jesus in the womb of a young Israeli girl. And Jesus was born without much fanfare other than the angels in a sort of a hidden place amongst animals and the smell and all that comes with that. And Jesus grew up. He grew up in a poor family. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Likely, they worked with rocks more than working with wood in that day. And uh, Jesus grew up as a carpenter. And Jesus was a man, make no mistake about it. He got blisters. He got tired. He got hungry. He had to, like, find new contracts when this contract was finishing up. If you're a blue-collar worker here this morning, Jesus can identify with you. So who was this Jesus, this carpenter, really? Who was he? And why was he here on earth? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, Paul refers to this Jesus as the last Adam, or the new Adam. Now, the first Adam was to represent God. The first Adam was to take care of the planet, was supposed to, to, to reveal and show the life of God, and we know that that failed because Adam sinned. Jesus, like the first Adam, didn't have an earthly father. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus was given supremacy not only over the earth, but also over the heavens and the earth. And most importantly of all, Jesus, the last Adam, never sinned. He reflected the divine life of God perfectly in every way. He showed us what God was like. You know, sometimes people, uh, they have these theological discussions about what is God like? Well, we know what God is like by reading the Gospels. 
This passage that I read said that God's fullness, all of God's fullness, lived in Jesus. And so when we read the Gospels, and we should immerse ourselves in the Gospels, read them over and over. When we read the Gospels and read about the life of Jesus, we're learning about who God is. And so we see Jesus bursting on the scenes in Canaan, Cana at a wedding. And the bridegroom is out of wine. And in that culture, this is a huge social blunder. Uh, this, is, this is a failure that will embarrass the bridegroom, the bride, the family. It's going to be uh, some, a mistake you don't live down easily. Jesus enters that situation where this man had failed. He'd blown it. He didn't, he didn't plan right. And Jesus turns water into wine. And not just wine, but the best wine. And Jesus actually takes this man's failure and turns him into a hero. Like, you saved the best wine for the last. That's awesome. Friends, that's who God is. Or we see Jesus at a wedding, or sorry, at, at a well at noon. He's hot. It's hot, and he's thirsty and hungry. His disciples go into the town, and Jesus is left alone with a woman, a woman who is a multiple divorcee. She's living with a guy. She's sort of rejected by the townspeople. Now, uh, men who were Jewish did not talk to Samaritans. They especially didn't talk to Samaritan women. And they especially didn't talk to Samaritan women who were sinners, quote unquote. But Jesus not only has a conversation with her, but he begins to tell her things about the Father that he had told no one else. And as Jesus is conversing with this woman, there's something inside of her that begins to change and somehow she can admit the brokenness and the failure of her life, but at the same time, there's hope and there's, there's something changing within her. So much so that she runs back into the town. She tells all of her neighbors and friends, and if she had any friends, and uh, the townsfolk, and her story is so convincing somehow because I think they saw a change in her, on her face. They could see something was changed. They come running out to meet this man. And Jesus spends several days in a Samaritan village, eating, sleeping in their beds, using their utensils. Jesus is always more concerned about people than tradition and cultural things that divide us. That's what God is like. Or we see Jesus kneeling in the ground, and he's quiet. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they drag this scantily clad woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. They drag her and push her down at the feet of Jesus. I always think, where's the man in this story? But imagine this woman, her hair is disheveled. She's probably scraped and bruised and maybe bleeding. But think of the horror of the shame that she must be feeling in this moment. Unimaginable. And the law, the Jewish law says she, would, she must be stoned. And so the leaders throw her down before Jesus and say, what do you say? And Jesus is still. And then finally he says, whoever doesn't have sin in their life, they can throw the first stone. And the crowd of men goes silent. And one by one, their heavy rocks drop thud, thud, thud to the ground. That's who God is. Jesus was a man 
but he lived out the complete fullness of God for us to see. Well, not only is Jesus the last Adam, but Jesus is the new Israel. You see, where Israel failed as a nation to reflect the divine nature of God, Jesus succeeded. Did you know that Israel as a nation was called, in the Old Testament, in several places, they're called the firstborn son of God. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, I think it's verse 13, Matthew is writing, he quotes an Old Testament prophet who had written about 700 years before Jesus was born. And Hosea is writing about the firstborn son coming out of Egypt. Well, that's what happened. Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But Matthew takes those words and breathes new life into them, saying, this is actually a prophetic word talking about Jesus. Jesus, the firstborn, would come out of Egypt. Well, Jesus, did he come out of Egypt? Well, he wasn't born there, but remember how Herod was killing off all the baby boys? So Mary and Joseph were warned in a dream to take Jesus out of Israel. They went to Egypt. When Herod died, they brought Jesus out of Egypt back into Israel. The nation of Israel wandered and were tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Before Jesus began his public ministry, he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. These are not coincidences. Jesus is reliving the, nation, the life of Israel. He's making things right. He's bringing to fulfillment in the wilderness, the nation of Israel, the, 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 the people that ate manna or bread from heaven. Do you remember what Jesus referred to himself as? The bread of heaven. Jesus to chose 12 men to be his representatives. His disciples, those he would, who, whom he would send out to represent him. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus was literally reconstituting Israel, the nation. And then, I've already introduced you to this woman. But just as Jacob met a woman at the well at noon who became his wife, Jesus met a woman at a well at noon. Now, he did not, she did not become his wife, but she was both Jewish and Gentile. That's what Samaritan means. Jesus would have a bride one day. And that bride would not just be made up of Jewish people. That bride would be made up of all nations of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. This amazing Jesus was reliving the nation of Israel before our eyes. Not only was Jesus the last Adam and the new Israel, but Jesus redeemed all things that were fallen and broken. He redeemed it all to himself and to God the Father. How did he do this? Well, he did it on a wooden stake. He did it on a cross. God, the creator of the universe, shed his blood on that tree. And on that cross, and this is difficult, I think, for us to fully grasp, but Jesus took all of the sins, all of the brokenness, all of the hatred, all of the evil, all of, all of what's wrong with this world. He so took it on himself, he actually embodied sin. So much so that the Bible says God the Father had to turn away. He just couldn't, he, in his holiness, he could not, he could no longer stay by his son's side. And on the cross... Jesus battled the enemies of God. And he battled the greatest enemy of all. And that wasn't sin, and that wasn't even Satan. The greatest enemy of all 
is death. And Jesus waged a battle against death itself. And it appeared that death won. It appears and it actually happened. Jesus was dragged into the grave and Jesus, the man, died. He laid in that tomb for three days. And on the third day, God, in all of his fury and love and righteousness, picked a fight with Satan. (laughs) And there was an epic battle. And as God waged war against Satan and hell itself, Jesus' body in that tomb quivered and came to life. And Jesus walked out of that tomb. And Jesus put death, Jesus killed death forever. Jesus took the sting, completely took the sting out of death. And that's why at every Christian funeral, yes, there is still grief. Yes, there is still sadness and deep sorrow. But at every Christian wedding, there is this amazing hope that you just, it's tangible. You can see it. You can feel it. You can taste it. Because the sting of death is gone. That's what Jesus did on the cross. A week later, Jesus was in a garden again and he breathed on his disciples. Jesus, the resurrected man, referring to himself as the vine. Hmm, the tree of life. The tree of life is back. And he breathes his spirit on his disciples. And Jesus becomes the firstborn of many sons and daughters. Well, not only is Jesus the last Adam and the new Israel and the redeemer of all things, but Jesus Christ came to earth to create a new life. And here's what I mean by that. Before time began, God, the Spirit, and the Son wanted to extend their family. They wanted to enlarge it. And so Jesus came not only to make a way to God, but Jesus came to get a bride, to start a family. Now, not in the literal sense of the word, but let me take you back to Adam. Fell into a sleep, his side was opened, and out came Eve. Well, listen to this. In a garden... Jesus fell into a deep sleep, the deepest sleep of all, death. And his side was pierced. And out of that side came blood and water. And to this day, whenever new life enters the world, there is blood and water. In fact, in John, and I want to read this to you, in John chapter 16, Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples because he's telling them, I'm about about to be crucified. And he says this, He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world is going to rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. And then he uses this metaphor. He says, it will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, guess what? He brought a new baby into the world. It's called the church, the ecclesia. Paul writes about this later in Ephesians. He says, whenever a man and a woman get married, their marriage union is actually a symbol of a far greater spiritual truth and reality. Jesus loves the church like his bride. Jesus 
came to earth to give birth to the bride. Not only is Jesus the last Adam and the new Israel and the redeemer of all things and not only did Jesus give birth to a new life form, the church, Jesus is preparing a place. When Jesus left this earth, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he was talking to his children, to the church, to his bride. And Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare the most amazing place for my bride because I love her so much. And he has been and is to this day preparing that place for those who place their faith in Jesus. And this bride, this bride is glorious. This bride is so beautiful. The church is like nothing the world has ever seen. And I, I truly mean that. This bride, there is going to be so much unity, so much love, so much, so much oneness. In fact, so much so that Paul says, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, there's no rich or poor. Everyone is just on level ground and they love each other. Guess what? Like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love one another. And friends, that has been God's eternal purpose from the beginning of time. And that is the role that Jesus, our Christ, has played. Jesus came at Christmas, obscure, in a little town, in a barn. But one day he's coming again. And the skies are going to split open. And Jesus will come announcing his kingdom. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and Jesus will come in glorious power and majesty. And that scene that we see in Genesis where God took and created a woman out of the side of Adam. And he looked at her and I think it was love at first sight. He said, huh, finally. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That scene is going to be replayed in the heavenly realms at the end of time. Jesus is going to look at his bride. And he's going to see the perfect uni uh, unity, the perfect harmony. He's going to see the people from every race and every part of the planet. And they're going to be one. And Jesus is going to receive this bride unto himself. Now, our journey is almost done. But I just want to take you a few more steps to the summit. This Christ who was the creator of all things. This Christ, who was the last Adam and lived out to perfection the divine nature of God. This Christ who came as a baby. This Christ who lived as a carpenter and then became a teacher. This Christ who willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. This Christ who rose from the dead. This Christ who returned to heaven and is preparing a place for us. This Christ who will one day come again. This glorious, matchless, victorious, amazing King of kings and Lord of lords lives in us. And that's the summit of the journey I want to take us on. And that's what Paul, that's what Paul was writing about. And I want to just read this to you. It says, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. And this is the secret. This is the mystery. Christ lives in you. That's been God's 
eternal plan from the beginning of time to have a people that he would be so united with. There would be such intimacy. You would say things like, Christ is in me and I am in Christ. And this is why Paul wrote things like, for me to live is Christ. Nothing else matters but Christ. In Ephesians, Paul was basically writing the same thing. And he's almost overcome as he ponders the truth of this mystery that Christ lives in us. And he says in Ephesians 3.14, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees. Paul was undone. When I think of this, I fall to my knees. I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts. Wow. In their uh, book entitled Read Jesus, Alan Hirsch and uh, Michael, I forgot his last name, uh, they tell about a conference where there were 600 participants. And this was a Christian conference and there was pastors and Christian counselors and doctors and nurses and it was a conference on Jesus and healing. And at one point, the presenter at this conference told kind of the three stories about uh, Jairus who comes to Jesus because his daughter is dying and he pleads for Jesus to come heal his daughter. As Jesus is going, a desperate woman who's been sick for many, many years pushes through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed. And the onlookers are seeing all of this happen. And the, uh, the teacher at this conference, he said, I want you to ponder and think about who you identify most with in, these, in this story. Is it the woman who's been desperate to touch Jesus for many, many years? Is it the crowd? You're kind of just this curious onlookers. Uh, or is it the desperate father? Or is it Jesus? So about 100 of these participants said they identified most with the woman. A couple hundred said they identified most with the father, and the rest basically said they identified with the crowd, except for six. Six people said they identified with Jesus. Can I suggest that 594 people at that conference had lost track of Jesus? You see, Jesus lives in us. He wants us to understand the Christian life is not about us trying harder. The Christian life is about us dying to ourselves and being alive in him so much so that we identify with Jesus in all of the circumstances of life. He is the one that we begin, so much so that we begin to think like him and act like him and respond to people. And yes, we will never accomplish that perfectly or fully in this world. As we close this morning, I just wonder if we actually believed and lived into the truth of this, that Jesus lives in us, how would it affect the way we view ourselves? How would it affect the way we respond and relate to other people? How might it affect the way we relate to God, our Father? You see, Jesus lives in us. And I don't know how all of you see yourselves this morning. But I know sometimes I can see myself as a sinner who believes all kinds of lies about who I am because of my past. And you struggle with the reality that, no, that's not who I am. 
I am royalty. I am God's son. And if you're a woman, in that case, you're God's daughter. All things have been made new. The old has passed away. And so as we look into a new year, friends, my encouragement and my challenge to us is that we should never lose track of Jesus because he is inside of us. Live into that truth every day. Let that truth embolden you, encourage you, and make you a new person day by day. I suspect there may be people here this morning that um, you don't know Jesus, and so Jesus actually isn't in you because you have never really maybe heard the gospel or the good news this way. And if something is stirring inside of you right now, that's God's spirit. And he's, he's knocking on that door of your heart and saying, receive me. I, I want to come be a part of your life. And I just want to say, you do what the Spirit directs you to do. You say yes to him. I want to read two verses for the benediction this morning found in the same book of Colossians. Paul said, let the message about Christ in all of its richness, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God our Father. May the peace of Christ go with you. If you uh, would like to pray, there'll be people up here to pray with you. And have an awesome week and super new year. And remember, friends, Christ lives in you. Live in that truth. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.